And the speaker we've invited to come and be with us uh, is going to deal with the issue of biblically measured, uh, helping expose us to what it means to have a biblical worldview. Uh, Most of you, uh, if you've been through men's fraternity, were very encouraged by Robert Lewis and some of the stuff that he has done. He started a church years ago called Fellowship Bible Church, of which our speaker today is on staff as our equipping director. Uh, And also, uh, if you've appreciated listening to Jared communicate and uh, to hear the wisdom that he's got, I think he'd be the first to tell you that what he's got was deposited into him by this gentleman, Rick, who's going to speak here today. Rick's married to his bride, Judy, of 37 years. He's got three kids and five grandkids, did his undergrad work at UTA, went to Dallas Seminary, which is where Mike and I went to school, fought his way through there, got a THM, uh, which is a master's in theology degree. I started the THM degree and tapped out at about year three, uh, but uh, he finished it, and then... uh, kind of in keeping with, I think, Rick's personality, decided to go back some years later and got a doctorate from there. Uh, He's a very, very sharp man. He's a biblically measured man. He spent some time with us yesterday uh, with our staff team, just did a tremendous job walking through some observations from the book of Acts, really understands the scripture and really gets what it means to be uh, an equipped follower of Christ. He's a church planter, planted a church, has resuscitated churches, which is not always easy, and serves, as I said, as the equipping director of Fellowship Bible Church uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. So why don't you welcome uh, with me, if you will, Rick Taylor. Thanks, Brad. (laughs) Appreciate it. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. I think I'm terribly overdressed, but anyway, uh, it's great to be here. Before I went to Arkansas, I was in uh, Oregon uh, for 10 years, and uh, it's nice to be back to the West Coast. It really is. It's uh, good to be here with you all. Well, when you walked in today, you received a handout, and I want you to pull that out, and we're going to get through part of that today, and part of it is just for uh, you to be able to look at after you leave here as well. Uh, But... uh, In Romans chapter 12, if you have a Bible, you might want to look at that for just a second. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says after he has finished the first 11 chapters where he has spelled out the gospel of Jesus Christ in great detail. Uh, By the way, when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he had never been there. No uh, apostle had ever been to the church at Rome Uh, And the church at Rome was facing some very unusual circumstances. Uh, Every church that Paul had ever been involved in, in fact, almost every church in the New Testament, always began with a Jewish core of people who became Christians, and then Gentiles were added. But in the church in Rome, it was a different story, because the the church there began with Gentile Christians. Uh, The Jews had all, all Jews, had been kicked out of the city of Rome by the Caesar, And only three years before Paul wrote the book of Romans were they allowed to come back in. And some of them came back in as believers now. And so the Jewish people who were detested by the Gentiles in the city of Rome were now coming together as one body. And it created all kinds of problems. And so Paul is writing to them, trying to help them understand both Jew and Gentile not only the gospel in clarity, but trying to understand how it is something for everybody. It's for everyone. And he has just presented all that in the first 11 chapters. And now when we get to chapter 12, 
He makes an interesting beginning in chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, or I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which I've spelled out in the last 11 chapters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he concludes, and he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If we could just stop there for just a second. Paul is writing to this group of people, Gentiles in the city of Rome, who have, uh, for the most part, grown up there and lived in the Roman culture. Jews who have grown up in a Jewish culture, even though they live in the city of Rome now, and he is saying, do not allow yourself to be poured into the mold of your culture. Don't let that happen to you. When I, when I think about this word, the picture that comes to my mind is when I was growing up, I'd watch my mom make jello. And she'd get this liquid and she'd stir it up and put a color in it or something. And then she'd put it in a, a bowl or a dish. And my mom had uh, some of the dishes she had, she was very creative, had faces on them and other things like that. She'd pour this liquid in, stick it in the refrigerator, and a few hours later she'd pull it out and she'd take that and dump that jello mold onto a plate. And you could see the shape of the bowl on that jello. And he's saying, don't allow yourself to be poured into the mold of your culture. We have a culture in America, you have a culture here in Fresno, uh, and he's saying, don't allow yourself to be poured into the mold that is here. Do not be conformed to this world. The word world there means world system, the, the culture, the world system around you. Don't allow yourself to be poured into that. But he goes on and he says, but be transformed. Now, most of us saying, yeah, people shouldn't be conformed to their image, to the, to the world. They shouldn't be... They should be like us, not poured into the mold of our culture. But the reality is we all are. Every one of us here today have been formed in great measure by our culture, whether we realize it or not. That's the subtle thing about it. Now, how do I know that that's what Paul is saying? Because in the next phrase he says, but be transformed. That word transformed is the word we get our word metamorphosis from in the Greek. It's the idea of being changed from this into something else that you were really designed for ultimately. He's saying you already have been poured into the mold of your culture. We're born into this world system, and we learn life in this world system, our culture. And it trains us, and it shapes our perspective and the way we make decisions in life. And he's saying... We need to be transformed. We need to go through a metamorphosis. And how can we do that? He goes on and he says, by the renewal of your mind. We've got to change the way we see the world, see life. Our perspective has to change. Now, God has given us a lot of things to help us change our perspective. And one of those things, clearly, one of the major things that we have the benefit of is this book. And far too often we look at this book as just something that we're supposed to read five minutes every day so that we get our checkoff box with God. And he says, okay, you did your deed today. But he says, I gave you this to transform you, to use this to, to renew your mind, to help you see life more clearly from my perspective, not from the perspective of the world and everything. 
what I want to do today is share a little bit with you about how God uh, is in the process of renewing us and what He is renewing us from in American culture today. Uh, I want you to see some of the mold we have been poured into and how God wants us to break free of that. He wants us to be transformed out of that way of thinking. Uh, I teach a course by this title uh, back at my church. It's a semester-long course and everything, and uh, it's amazing to watch the light bulbs come on and people say, I never realized that part of my life was not biblical. It wasn't of God. It was strictly of the world. And I hope in a few minutes here today, we can open our eyes to say, we have been poured into a mold. What are we going to do to be transformed out of that mold? Okay? For just a few minutes. Now, the premise I have today is this. God has revealed himself to every person. There in your notes. Uh, God has revealed himself to every human person Everyone knows about God. And I mentioned just a few passages there. In our very design, uh, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he says, uh, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over everything I've created. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. This whole idea of creating us in the image of God... He has just finished talking about earlier in the few verses before that about on the sixth day God created all the animals after their own kind, according to their own species. But when he comes to man, he says, yes, you're biologic, but you're different because you're not created just as another species of animals. You are created after my kind. You're of my stock, God says. We're created in the image of God. We are of God's stock. And he says, in the likeness of of God, the physical reflection of God on earth. He designed us as mankind to be the physical reflection of Him on planet earth. That's, you could ask, well, why in the world would He want to do that? Was He vain or something? Uh, a few verses after this, in verse 28, actually, He says, uh, uh, He blessed them and He basically gave them everything they needed uh, to accomplish what He wanted them to accomplish. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And in this context, to fill the earth with my image. That's what I want you to do. And then he says two more things. I want you to subdue it and rule over it. The word subdue, every time that word is used in the, in the Bible, it means to forcibly bring under control that which is out of control. There was something out of control on planet earth. And he put us here in one of the ways, the primary way, he wanted us to bring under control that which was out of control was to be a reflection of him on planet earth. And we see that which was out of control in chapter 3. It was Satan and his forces were here. And he wanted to use us to be a reflection of him in the world and to bring under control that which was out of control. We see in Psalm 19, 1-6, God has revealed himself. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the firmament declares the glory of God. We see God has revealed himself in his creation. He's not only revealed himself in the very way he designed us, he has revealed himself in his creation. We can see uh, the, the artist in the art of this, of this universe that we live in. He has revealed himself in his word. All scripture is breathed out. It's inspired by God. He has revealed himself. We could look at a number of other passages. 
where he has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, came into the world and enlightened every man. He was the physical representation of God on earth in a perfect sense uh, for us. He has revealed himself that way. And he has revealed himself within every person. And we're going to look at these verses in just a second. But God has made uh, himself evident. Every human person has this insight, this concept, there is a God that is inborn within them. Now, what I'd like you to do is look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 for just a second. Powerful verses that we see here in Romans chapter 1. In verses 16 and 17, he has talked about the thesis of this letter that I'm writing to you is about the gospel. I want you to understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel for your life. And he says this, why? For the wrath of God, in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, unrighteousness by their lives that are lived contrary to the way God designed life, the way God is, and that sort of thing, by doing that, they suppress the truth. They make it difficult for us to see reality. The, the lives lived around us uh, and our lives, quite frankly, in many cases, it, make it makes it difficult for us to see reality around us the way it really is. For what, we can be, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them or God has made it evident within them. God has done that. He has made himself known within them. He goes on and he says, for the, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We see again, he revealed himself in his creation. Uh, and then he says, so they are without excuse. Everyone in the world is without excuse. For although they, the people of the world, knew God, he had revealed himself, they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their perception, their minds, and that sort of thing, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for cheap substitutes for God. What's the picture he's painting here, Paul's painting for them? He's saying, as, as I'm writing to you, I want you to realize uh, we, we all know about God, all of us. God has revealed himself within us. God has revealed himself in his creation. God has revealed himself in his word and everything else we've talked about. God has revealed himself. It's not a matter of that being a problem. The problem is how we have responded to what we know about God. And uh, that is the issue he wants to deal with here. And he says, every one of us look at God and we, we have not honored him. We have not given him the credit that he deserves for being God, nor given thanks to him for the very life that we have. Instead, what we have done is create an, a God of our own making that we're comfortable with, a cheap substitute. That's what we've done for the most part. Rather than looking at him and seeing him for who he is, we create something that's more comfortable for us to live with in our, with our perverted minds. 
and everything. Now we're going to look at some of the ways that we have done that as a culture and everything. But I want us to realize this is true of all of us. These first several verses of the book of Romans, he is, verses 18 to the end of the chapter there in Romans chapter 1, he is speaking to mankind as a whole. He's speaking to all mankind. That includes you and me. We have done that, he says. I'm standing here before you saying we shouldn't do it, and I've done it. We all do it. We all have a perverted view of God. I remember one of the first times this really came home to me personally was uh, uh, back in 1979. Our, our firstborn son, Kyle, he was five and a half years old, and he died in a, a tragic drowning accident. And uh, it rocked my world. It rocked Judy's world. It, that year after that was the hardest year of our lives. Uh, together and individually. It just, what's going on? And I can remember my mental gyrations back and forth with God, just talking to Him and yelling at Him at times. And what I began to realize over the course of that year is that I never would have written some of these down on a doctrinal statement or here's what I believe about God, but here's what I realized some things about myself. There were times I realized I was angry at the God I had created in my own mind, not of the God that really exists, because I realized I thought about God like a genie in a bottle. I'm supposed to be able to pray, rub the bottle, and he's supposed to show up and give me whatever I want. Who's in control, by the way, of the genie in the bottle and the person rubbing it? It's the person rubbing it. They're in control, and the genie shows up and gives you whatever you want. Or he's not a good genie. He's powerful. He can do that. But you're in control. And I realized I was God, mad at that kind of a God. Because he didn't show up and give me what I wanted. He didn't give me my son back. He didn't make that day come back and, and do it a different way. He didn't do that. I realized I was mad at a God that was like Superman. Who was uh, strong and capable and good intentioned and everything else. But he just wasn't able to be every place all the time. And he wasn't able to be there for me and my son that day. And I was mad at him for that. I was angry at him for that. I was angry at the God like a godfather who was strong and, and, and powerful and can do a lot of great things and that sort of good things or powerful things or influential things, but you better never cross him. And I found myself asking God, what did I do to deserve this? That's not the God of the Bible, but that's the God of my own making. I began to think about all these different images of God that I had in my mind that I was angry that he didn't do what I wanted him to do when, he want, when I wanted him to do them. But that wasn't the God of the Bible. I had a distorted view of God. And that incident, that loss of our son highlighted for me how perverted my mind was, even for someone who spends their life thinking about God and studying the Bible about God, I had a perverted image of God. And it affected the way I thought, the way I felt, the way I made choices in life. We, in many ways, are victims of our culture. Now, I don't say that in a 
uh, pathetic kind of way or as an excuse. But the reality is we are born into a world system that by its very nature has tried to explain life apart from God. That's the world we grow up in. That's the world we're born into. And so we keep hearing all of these different ideas about God or there is no God or trying to explain life apart from Him. Let me give you an example uh, in the next page and a half here as we in your notes. Uh, the second part of this, every person responds to God's revelation. And, and I've tried to boil this down into six major ways that we respond. Here in the middle of page one on your notes, actually, every person responds to God's revelation in, in one of six primary ways. Now, the very first one I have here, uh, this image of God is a personal God relationship, which is in my intent here is to say, if it were possible for us to have an absolutely pure, untainted view of God, this would be it. Unfortunately, none of us have that perfectly uh, at all. Uh, unfortunately, most of us think we do. And we get sideswiped when we lose a child, when something tragic happens, when we can't explain things, when we cry out to God and we realize, like I do, that I have a perverted view of God. I want to believe this, but I've been so tainted by the world really have. So let's look at the next five. And they are subtle variations at first that keep leading us further and further and further away from the true image of God. The first one is what I call an uninvolved God substitute, uh, the clockmaker God. This would be, uh, if some of you have studied the isms of life, this would, would be deism, would be a, a major part of this. Or what we might call finite Godism, sort of that Superman view of God as well. But deism is something that has really influenced our culture. Let me tell you this. I am convinced that most people who go to church today in America for all practical purposes are deists. Most. The vast majority of people who attend churches in America today believe this rather than the true image of God. Okay, let's look at, let me just tell you a little bit about it. If you're familiar with names uh, in history, people like John Locke in the 1600s, people like David Hume in the 1700s, people like Thomas Paine in the 1700s, people like uh, Thomas Jefferson in the 1700s, people who were writers who influenced the way we think about life uh, unabashedly said, here is our view of God. God is like the, the giant clockmaker. They believed in the God who created the world that's described in Genesis, all-powerful, and that we will be held accountable for him, uh, by Him someday for the things we do in this life. But their view of God was He was like a giant clockmaker that created all the pieces of the clock, put them together intricately, called this world. And he wound the clock up, set it on the shelf, and stepped back, and he's totally uninvolved. You don't pray to this God because this God is not going to answer your prayer because he's uninvolved. He gave us everything we need to make life work. That's what he did from this view. Uh, we don't need to pray to him. We don't need to ask him. We don't need to expect miracles in any way whatsoever. 
this God has given us everything we need to make life work on our own. We don't need his involvement at all. Now, some of you are saying, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But from a practical point of view, do you believe God is truly involved in this world? That I can go to him in prayer and say, God, and he's going to hear me? And he wants to respond to me? Do I believe he's involved in this world today or not? Or do I live for all practical purposes as if he's left it all up to us? We've got to make it happen. When you've got a decision to make, what's the first thing you do? Is it you start running through your mind, what are my options, what do I need to do? Or do you stop and say, God, would you help me understand what you want me to do? Because the first one is more like a deist. The second one is more like the God of the Bible. Okay? And I have to tell you, an awful lot of my life, it's the first one. I start thinking all the options, alternatives, pros and cons, and I've got to make a decision. And usually it's when I get in trouble, I say, hey, God, could you get me out of trouble? But it's the first place we go to say, God, I need your help. I need to understand some things. I know there are things I don't understand. Would you help me with that? Would you bring someone or something into my life to help me with that? Would you do that and believe that he will do that? That's one of the things they talked about. Well, the question became then, how do we know uh, how to make life work? If God's put us here and and given us everything we need, how do we know how to make this life work? Uh, How do we do that according to this view? Well, what they would say is uh, reason. Logic. Thomas Paine wrote a book, The The Age of Reason. Uh, It's through reason, logic. If we just observe this world, we're going to start noticing certain systems. We're going to start noticing certain laws that sort of just surface to the top that are common sense. You may have heard that book uh, from the past and that sort of thing. They're just common sense. They're just uh, right there for us all to see and that sort of thing. One of the... uh, Catchphrases is they become self-evident. They just the truth will sort of surface to the top if you'll just apply your brain and logic and reason enough. The truths are just going to sort of surface to the top. They started creating what they called systems. God has created the clock to function certain ways, so that certain wheels interfaced with certain other wheels just the right way. And he created these systems so that it would all work. And we need to identify what those systems are, again, through reason and logic and knowledge and that sort of thing, observing this world, and we'll figure all those out. You could say, well, a lot of those people read the Bible. Yeah, they did. They read the Bible. But they did not consider this the source for that information. It was reason, logic, knowledge observation. That's how we figure it out. I've given you a couple of quotes here at the bottom of that page, page one. The first one is from Thomas Paine in the Age of Reason, who was a, became a good friend of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Paine was English, but he moved to America for a period of time. He and Thomas Jefferson were very close. Uh, notice the very first line of this first quote, I believe in one God and no more. 
I believe in the creator God of the Bible that's described in the Bible, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I know I'm going to stand before him and have to give an account someday for what I do. Notice the last couple of lines that are underlined there. The true deist has but one deity, and his religion consists in contemplating thinking, reason, logic, contemplating the power, wisdom, and benignity of the deity and his work. I've got to use my mind to figure all that out and everything. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. I've got to use my mind. Notice the passage down below. Uh, I, get, I, I want you to know I am not un-American uh, at all, and I uh, appreciate a lot of things that our forefathers did, but sometimes we give them credit for doing things they didn't do. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant man. But Thomas Jefferson, by his own words, was a thoroughgoing deist. Uh, and uh, notice this letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote, April 13, 1820, to a friend, William Short. William Short was a friend of his who invited him over to his house for sort of a, a reception. And Thomas Jefferson is writing a letter to accept that invitation. And in writing that letter, this is a part of what he said. <clears throat> He's going to bring with him a syllabus that he had written, Thomas Jefferson had written. He says, but while this syllabus is meant to place the character of Jesus in its true and high light as no imposter himself, but a great reformer of the Hebrew code of religion, it is not to be understood that I am with him, that I agree with him in all of his doctrines. I am a materialist. The materialist of that day in the 1700s, he says the physical world is all that there is. The material world is all that there is that we can count on. And he says, I'm a materialist. He takes, Jesus takes the spot side of spiritualism. He believes there's not only the material world, but the spiritual world. That's, those, that's what those terms mean. When he capitalizes them, there's a, it's a proper title for a philosoph these two different philosophies of that day. He, is a he believes in spiritualism. There is a spiritual element to this world. There's a supernatural element to this world that goes on. He says, I just believe in the physical world, and that's all. He preaches, Jesus preaches the efficacy of repentance towards forgiveness of sin. I require counterpose of good works to redeem it. In other words, I believe that I've got to do more good things than bad things in life to be redeemed. That's what I believe. Well, what are those good things? Well, it's figuring out the systems and everything else that God has designed and getting on the good side of him. He goes on to talk about what I appreciate about Jesus is how he lived his life, the morals, the character by which he lived his life. Thomas Jefferson went on to write the Thomas, or put together the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He went through the Gospels, and he cut out all of the stories of the Gospels <clears throat> out of his Bible, and uh, he pasted them into, uh, sort of did a... Uh, one story. He put all the gospel accounts together and made one story. So it was a, a chronological kind of New Testament or gospel account. But he left out one significant part of all the gospels, every miracle of Jesus. And he simply said, God isn't involved in this world, so Jesus couldn't have done miracles at all. This world is all there is. This is all there is. Uh, and nothing more. Uh, 
Let's look at the next view. That is a very subtle diversion. That's a very subtle, cheap substitute for the God of the Bible that we have moved toward. Uh, There are some buzzwords in uh, this whole idea of deism that, that grew up. Things like inalienable or unalienable right, rights. Things like systems are talked about. Things that they talked about in terms of uh, they would refer to God as providence in the, sen- in the sense of he designs things a certain way. Uh, just from th- some of the things I, I've told you, th- listen to some of these words from our Declaration of Independence and see if this view of life hasn't helped shape some of the way we think and believe and live today. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They surface to the top. We can see them for what they are. We don't hold these truths to be true because God has said them in the Bible. They're self-evident. We see them if we just observe and look and that sort of thing. And it goes on and it talks about a number of different things. I don't want to get into that too much right now. Uh, Our Declaration of Independence in many ways says God gave us the right because that's one of the systems he created to rebel against our government. We can do that because God set it up system that way. Uh, it's part of what's called contract theory that grew out of deism that says there's a contract that God established, one of these systems, between man and the government. And, and the people, the public, is in charge of the government. Now, I challenge you to find that here. You, you could keep going in this book. You get to Romans chapter 13, the first six or seven verses, and Paul says we need to submit to our governing authorities You know who the governing authority was when Paul wrote that? Nero, the madman. The man who would kill Paul in seven years. Execute him for being a Christian. And he says, we need to submit to our governing authorities. I'm not against America. God is overseeing what happens and everything else. But we have grown up thinking we have certain rights that in some cases we do, but do we have all of them that we think about? All of the time, according to the Bible. Let's look at the next one, an impersonal God substitute. This would be uh, pantheism, Hinduism, Buddhism, those kind of things. And you'd say, well, that doesn't really affect our world today, really. Uh, The person who was the first great modern philosopher was Benedict Spinoza. And... uh, He lived back in the uh, 1600s. He only lived for 45 years. Benedict Spinoza was a lens maker. He made eyeglasses for a living. And in the evening, he was single, and in the evenings he spent his time reading, researching, and writing. He was fascinated with Plato and a lot of the Greek philosophers back in the 3 and 400 BCs, uh, back in that period of time. But Benedict Spinoza was the first European uh, espouser of of pantheism, which basically says this world, you ask Benedict Spinoza, do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Do you believe there's one God? He would say, absolutely. Do you believe this God is all-powerful? Absolutely. Well, who is this God? Well, it is this universe. This universe, all put together is God, the energy or the force 
when you put all the pieces of this universe together, the force that is created, that is God. May the force be with you. Sound familiar? Uh, by the way, the whole, I love the Star Wars uh, movie series and all of that. I, that. It's really fascinating to me. Uh, George Lucas, in a Time Magazine article, right before the first Star Wars came out, he was asked, why are you coming out with this? What's, what, what brought all this about? And he says, when I was 16 years old, I had a mystical experience, and I became a Buddhist. And I want the young people of America to understand pantheism is an acceptable way of life and view of God. Okay? May the force be with you. If you want to know a lot about uh, this view of life, Star Wars is a great place to go and study what this view teaches uh, us in life. Now, am I saying you're wrong if you go watch the Star Wars movies? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, we just need to be aware. Because uh, when you take your children to watch the Star Wars movies or let them do that, they're being exposed to what George Lucas wanted them to be exposed to. May the force be with you. Call upon the energy, the power, the force of this universe to be on your side and that sort of thing. There's the good side and the dark side of the force, the light side and the dark side of the force, but there's only one force uh, and that sort of thing. And you have to decide which side you're going to be on and all of that. Uh, and I have some uh, things here you could read about that uh, Benedict Spinoza wrote. Uh, one of the things that he did was that he reintroduced Platonic thinking, Plato. Plato lived in the three or 400 B.C.s. Uh, he popularized a, a lot of things. He, he was a prof, prolific writer uh, and everything, and he had had a lot of influence for about a thousand years uh, until about five or 600 uh, A.D. He had tremendous influence in the world and the way, of, way people thought about life. But there was about a thousand-year period where that had gone dormant. Uh, and, and that had just sort of, well, Spinoza reintroduced Plato once again. And a lot of Plato's thinking about life, which we are still today living with, which I'll talk about in a second. Listen to some of these uh, three things that Spinoza talked about and see if they're not still influencing our world today. You ask Spinoza, is there a God? He would say, yes, there is a God. It is the universe. Secondly, since the earth is part of God, this universe, then the rules of nature are that we need to take care of this planet. He was the first great ecologist. We need to take care of this planet. Why? Because it's part of God, and we need to take care of God. We have a responsibility to do that. And he treated this planet as if it were God. Now, that doesn't affect any one of us on the, the, the West Coast, does it? You know, I, I, when I lived in Oregon, uh, just before I moved away, uh, about 11 years ago or so, uh, I saw in the paper a survey that had been done with elementary school-aged children uh, where they asked them a series of questions. Would you choose this or this if you had an alternative? It's sort of an ethical kind of a, where are you at in life? These were elementary age children. They asked them, if you had to save a baby whale or a, a human baby, which would you save? 82% said the baby whale. If you had to save a tree or a human baby, which would you say? 80% said the tree. 
Okay? Uh, we live in a, and, and the west coast of America particularly, and the far east coast as well, there is this, uh, we're enamored with the planet. Now, do I believe we ought to take care of the planet and be responsible and everything else? Yes. But not because it's God. Uh, it is not God. We ought to take care of it because God told us to rule over it, to be a manager of it, but because he's God telling us to do it, not because the planet is God. That's why I need to do that. And we have been so influenced in our culture that we need to take care of this planet. And the reason that you're hearing from most people is because it, it worships Mother Nature. We've got to take care of Mother Nature. Don't fool with Mother Nature. And we speak about Mother Nature as if it is a self-proclaimed uh, God. It's in charge. And, and we're just victims of it if we don't uh, pay any attention to that. The third thing that Benedict Spinoza <clears throat> uh, talked about was one of the rules of nature was that we had inalienable rights. Uh, and he introduced that. John Locke was born the exact same year as Benedict Spinoza, and he's picked up on this as well. And that's where this whole idea of inalienable rights comes from, all the way back to the 1600s with them, that we have these rights that God has given us, if you will. Uh, even though the, not the God of the Bible has listed all of those rights that we're claiming that we have. What about another one, a compromised God substitute? This is uh, the dualistic God. This is the one I'm talking about, Plato. <clears throat> Plato was an interesting guy. He lived around... Around, the, around 400 B.C., he was a student of Socrates, and he was the teacher of Aristotle. Aristotle was the teacher, the mentor of Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world at that time and spread the Greek language and philosophy throughout the known world. But Plato, uh, as a student of Socrates, uh, was uh, very shrewd. Socrates espoused a lot of the things that Plato talked about but uh, he never wrote a lot. What we, most of what we know about Socrates comes from Plato, writing about him. Socrates was killed, basically. He was given a, chance a choice between being executed or drinking hemlock poison and committing suicide uh, by the government because they disagreed with some of the things he was espousing, teaching philosophically and that sort of thing. So Plato, his student, is sitting there saying, hmm, how am I going to be a teacher and not have the same fate? So what he did, he wrote stories, dialogues between Socrates and his students. And he would basically say, this isn't me. I'm just writing stories about Socrates and his students. Uh, don't kill the messenger. I'm just, I'm just writing these stories. They're just stories. That, it's not until the very end of Plato's life that he started saying, now here's what I believe. When the government had changed enough, he could do that. But he wrote prolifically. That's why he's so famous, not because he came up with all these ideas independently by himself, but he was the writer of the ideas that got passed down and passed to his student uh, and passed on to Alexander the Great and spread throughout the known world at that time, and that's why it was so influential. Plato had this idea. Plato looked at the world and he said, you know what? There seems to be good and evil throughout the world. Good and evil. Uh, he believed in the mythical gods of the Greeks and that sort of thing, so there were a lot of gods, if you will, 
the gods of Plato's day would be like the superheroes. They would be the Batman and Robin, the Superman. People, uh, they would be like the X-Men. People had superhuman abilities and that sort of thing. But their morals would either be good or bad or whatever. They were tainted by this thing called good and evil as well. There were no perfect gods, just superhuman kind of gods. Uh, sort of like if you watch uh, the this, this show, the series Heroes, There's just, they have these superhuman abilities uh, and that sort of thing that we see in our cult, talked about in our culture today. Those are the gods, but everybody, every person and every god was influenced by two eternal realities. There was the eternal good. It had always existed and it always would exist, and that was the mind, thinking, reason, logic, uh, that sort of thing. And then there was the eternal evil, which was the material world. It always had existed and always would, and it was evil. If I had to paint a picture of what Plato taught and see if this doesn't ring true with a lot of the way the world thinks today, it's as if there were two dogs in the backyard, fenced-in backyard, and those two dogs always have been there and always will be there. One was a good dog and one was a bad dog, and they were constantly at war fighting each other. That's what they were doing, trying to gain control. And what, he is, what Plato would say is, if you want to succeed in life, if you want life to be better, you feed the good dog and starve the bad dog. Okay? If you want, if you want life to be as good as possible, you feed the good dog, mind, logic, thought, reason, uh, wisdom, those kind of things, and you starve the flesh. You, you starve our evil tendencies. Are you going to do evil things? Absolutely. Can you help it? No. It's just going to happen. That's just part of who you are. You're always going to do that. There was a, a tremendous amount of just saying, I can't help it. That's just who I am. Now, none of us have ever said that, have we? I just can't help it. I've tried to get over this hurt or this habit or this hang up over and over and over again, but I give up. I just can't help it anymore. You're a good Platonist, okay? Plato said, that's right, you can't, because it's always been here, it's always going to be that way, that's just who you are. Do we ever think that way? We do, don't we? We think, I just can't help it. Now, this is consistent with Deus saying, and there is no God to help me either, okay? I just can't help it. Have you ever thought, I know that when my kids got to be in high school, Judy and I both had this idea that uh, the best way to help our children for the future, besides the spiritual things that we had been developing in their lives all along, hopefully, and everything else, if they're going to succeed in life, they've got to have a good education. You know where that comes from? Plato. You feed the mind. You feed logic, knowledge, education. You feed that. And that's our best hope of dealing with what's wrong in the world. Now, I'm not against education, okay? But it is not the savior. It's not the solution to everything. Because education can be good and education can be bad. And uh, 
Just educating the mind, period, is not necessarily something that's going to be good. But we fall into that trap of thinking the best solution in life is a good education. Thomas Jefferson started public education believing that. He instituted public education saying, if, if America's going to have a chance in the long run, we've got to educate the minds of every child. And we've got to pool our collective thoughts together. Plato went so far in introducing that whole idea saying, the best hope for every city, for this world, is for every city to find its brightest young men, and he was very chauvinistic, to find our brightest young men, lock them away in a room in a castle, and create a think tank, and let them run everything. Let them create the laws, all of that, and, and that's our best hope for society, and that sort of thing. And we live with a lot of that uh, today. We really do. Uh, an impersonal no-God substitute, the, the fourth or the fifth one there that I want to look at, the it-God. If you ask a person who falls into this view, do you believe in God, they would say, no, I don't. There is no God. However, when you press them, there is something that's ultimate, something that's in charge, something that determines things for us. Karl Marx would say human history. Uh, he sometimes referred to it as the past. Uh, it's like a, a giant wheel rolling through life, the cycles of life or the cycles of history rolling along, and, and the best way to make it in life is to figure out where you're at on that wheel right now in our culture and to get on board and, and uh, make life work for you. And if you don't get on board with it, you're going to get crushed. I've had some very, some men that I really respect who've come to the point in their life where they said, I just want to figure out how life really works and get on the good side of that. I, I, I know what the Bible says, and I know some of those feel-good kind of things in the Bible, but, but there's another world that, that really works around me, and I want to get on the good side of that. That's Karl Marx thinking going all the way back to him, just getting on the good side of where things are at in life. Benedict Spinoza and nature. Nature is ultimate in many ways. B.F. Skinner in the 1900s writing about the environment. The environment determines everybody's outcome. And he would say the environment is ultimate uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, today, the world pantheistic movement talking about scientific naturalism once again, nature determines everything. You're a product of nature and that sort of thing. And uh, then we have a personal no-God substitute, the man-God. Man is God. Would you look at that quote underneath there by Jean-Paul Sartre? He says, The best way to conceive of the fundamental project of human reality is to say that man is the being whose project is to be God. I could quote you a whole lot more or give you, could have given you a whole lot more, but what, Benedict, what John Paul Sartre is saying basically is this. You are God. Grow up, accept it. Stop thinking that you need somebody else or something else or something else is going to help you. You are God. Live like it. Grow up. Now, there is a problem with this view, obviously, uh, in practice. If I am God and I, have, I make up my own decisions in life, 
independently of anyone or anything. I am not responsible to anything or anyone. I just do my own thing. If I don't like you, you're my neighbor, and, and you don't keep your yard up, and you let your bar- dog bark all night long, and you just irritate me, and I've talked to you, and you won't change, I just come out with my 9 millimeter and because I'm in charge. I do whatever I want. The problem with this view is it doesn't work socially. <laughs> it really doesn't. Uh, by the way, this is what gave birth to relativism. Everything's relative. Why? Why did we have to go there? Well, if I'm my own God and you're your own God, then my rules can't necessarily apply to you, so we have to have the ability to make up my own rules for life and your own rules for life. We've got to be able to do that. And surely none of us have ever heard, well, everything's relative. Man, I get preached at in the university that way. Everything's relative. If you want to see where this view goes, write down Judges 17 to 21 out of the Bible, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it leads to anarchy, absolute anarchy. When I was in Eugene, Oregon, just before I left, a group started up called the Anarchists, and they are very involved throughout the United States right now, but that's, they're just living out this kind of an idea. Let me wrap up by saying this. Uh, on Thursday, I was teaching my class, and I asked the question, what is evil and where did it come from? And it relates to all of this because as I studied Satan, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, Isaiah 14, but Ezekiel 28 particularly, there is this picture where God is talking to Satan and he says, I created you with all this beauty and wonder and power and influence, but I created you with all of that and you took your eyes off of me and brought it back to yourself. You started getting enamored with who you were, took your eyes off of me as God and put your eyes on yourself. What is uh, Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden? You don't need to look at that God and all that stuff he told you and everything. Look what you could have without him that he doesn't want you to have. And they took their eyes off of God and all that he had given them and focused on themselves and what they wanted. And we could go all the way through the Bible and see that over and over again. Eve looked at the fruit and she saw that it was good. It was a delight to the eyes. Her focus was off of God and onto something else for her own benefit. That is the first step for all of us in having cheap substitutes for God. God has revealed himself, but we have responded to God by creating gods of our own making, by getting our eyes off of him and bringing it down to ourselves. I want to encourage us, um, as, as you go through uh, the day, as you go through this week, where is your focus? Is this book that is designed to help renew our minds something you go to to help refresh your mind, help you to see the difference between what God says and what the world says? Or are we going to be poured into the mold of our 
ancestors. The people who wanted us to understand life apart from God, not the God of the Bible. The people who wanted to create a God of their own making that they were comfortable with, not the God who is ultimately in charge. That's the God we need to keep focused on, the God of the Bible. And this is the place to do that in this book. Let me pray. I'll close up. Father, thank you so much for who you are. You are a great and awesome God. Father, I apologize for how distorted I have made you in my own mind, in my own heart. God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to uh, fall into that trap, but it is so hard. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you didn't put us here on planet Earth and say, good luck, I hope you can figure it out. You gave us a sure word that we can go to and depend upon and learn about you. God, help us to go to your book repeatedly, constantly, often and ask you, God, change my mind. Father, we ask you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.